Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today we are talking to Renata Chlumska, who has done some pretty wild things. Renata is a connection from a friend of mine, Kaj, over at Exped. Awesome company if you're looking for backpacking gear, uh, car camping gear, really high quality, very high quality equipment. Go to exped.com, E-X-P-E-D. Great stuff. And uh, Kaj there is is a great friend and and has uh, connected us. And Renata's story is wild. Uh, unfortunately, it started, uh, you know, with the death of her partner and a fellow very accomplished climber and adventurer. Uh, this specific story that is started with that passing away, this was a dream of both of them to do a circumnavigation of the U.S. by bike and by kayak. And it's such a random idea, such a unique idea. I thought it would be a really interesting story to talk about. But Renata has done so many other types of adventures. In fact, she was the first Swedish and Czech woman to climb Mount Everest. So she was, she, you know, she's done some huge, huge projects. But this one was so unique because it was such a long journey. Um, so many miles, so much time started and ended in Seattle and just literally hugged the U.S., whether that be in water, if the border was a river like the Rio Grande uh, or against the oceans or biked when there was, you know, the, the border was actually on land, say like the Canadian U.S. border in parts of Mexico. So the story just, it, I mean, it, it's so unique. You're the only person doing something like this when you're out on, a, on an adventure like this. And so uh, it was great to talk to Renata uh, and to hear about this trip that she did uh, quite a few years ago, 2005, 2006, and her future aspirations of becoming an astronaut. So someone that's living life, quite well into the fullest so it was great to have her on and uh yeah let's go ahead and jump in all right folks welcome to the podcast you heard a little bit about uh, renata's story in the intro by the way i record that afterwards renata so uh. i used to read everyone's accolades right here in front of them but for someone with as long <laughs> as a list as you. One, I would leave something out. Two, I would mess something up. And it's just too much pressure. So I do that after the fact now. But anyway, uh, Renata Hlumska, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I am so excited to talk. So, so uh, where where is home for you and where are you coming from today if those aren't the same place? Well, my home since many, many years is a small town in Sweden, Jönköping. That's where I have my base camp. It's not too far from Gothenburg, a bit south of Stockholm. Uh, but I'm born and raised in the southern parts of Sweden, in Malmö, just across from Copenhagen. But yeah, Sweden is where I have my base. That's where I'm born and raised and where I reside. From an adventure point of view... What What is that area like? Is it known for having people doing the things that you do or is it are, are you kind of a, a unique person for your area? Well, I think that, I mean, Scandinavia in general and, and, and as well as and Sweden, I think it doesn't really matter where in Sweden you're from. People do have a lot of adventure spirits in them. Uh, the area that I'm from is maybe not 
super known for you know adventures, but it's very outdoorsy. We have a fantastic big lake that you can have fun in all year round. There is something called the Highlands, so we do have quite a bit of snow in the winter. So there is both yeah, cross country skiing and uh, you can do mountain biking, and I mean there is a lot of activities and a lot of outdoorsy people here. But there are areas in Sweden that are maybe even more known for for the uh, for the adventure kind of sports. We I just talked to somebody that is climbing the I think eleven or fifteen two thousand meter peaks in Sweden mm-hmm. Sweden in the north, yeah. and they're doing yeah. it in one big trip, or they did it already. Uh, Jackie Paso, yeah, and she is married to a famous Swedish ski mountaineer. Oh, I forgot his name, but anyway, I was just talking to them, and it just—I was looking it up, and I said, "Yeah, this is unbelievable. I can't. I mean, there's like a thousand miles of you know north to south Sweden of just adventures to be had. It seems like such such a fantastic place to build these skills and to build kind of the tenacity and the resilience you need for doing some of the things that you've done." Yeah, absolutely. And I think she's in Åre, which is a very has a very large uh, skiing and free riding community. So, yeah, if you're into that, then you should be in Åre, not in Jönköping, where I am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. Well, well, I tell you what, I know you've literally, I mean, there's probably 50 different podcast episodes that you have that we could talk about as far as adventures <laughs> you've been on that would be full episodes or, or full, full books, honestly. And, and folks have heard some of that in the intro. But I think it would be uh, best for us to focus on one. Um, I've always found it a little easier with someone with as many adventures as you have to talk about one in specific, to really draw out the stories. And the one that I think would be the most interesting right now would be uh, when you went the, did the Around America adventure in the lower 48s of the United States. And, and there's not a ton I know about it. I, I'm very interested because I want to know why, why do this and also how you did it. But could you talk about maybe exactly what that adventure is and, and why the, the, the U.S.? Why did you choose this as the place to basically circumnavigate? Um, well, that expedition and adventure was chosen for many uh, different reasons, actually. Um, at that time, the idea was born in 2000. Uh, and uh, at that point, I was living together with a very well-known Swedish high-altitude climber, Göran Kropp. And uh, he had been on Everest and K2 and Broad Peak and Shoyo, all uh, 8,000 meter peaks. And we summited Everest together. And uh, he was um, planning to do a very uh, exciting expedition to actually solo sail down to the Antarctic, ski to the South Pole and then sail home again. And we had started talking about doing that adventure together. And to be able to finance that and to train and prepare properly, we knew that we probably would be better off in in the U.S. and also to start from there. And Seattle was a, a, a city where we had a few new friends and it also has a large outdoor community. So we relocated to Seattle. And at, when we started planning uh, or we started thinking about how to 
hey, how to go about getting sponsors and financing this huge expedition. Uh, we started looking at, we wanted to do something in the US to kind of get to know the new country that we had moved to, to get acquainted with the, the, the country and discover it um, um, in our way. And this expedition about circumnavigating the lower 48 states by our own strength started to take shape at that same time. Uh, there's That's kind of typical for me and for us, for us to have numerous expeditions going on at the same time. There's so much fun things to do. And uh, so this started to shape. Um, so we decided, decided to do that expedition first and kind of build us a name also in the US as adventures and easier to get finances for the bigger projects further on. And uh, then, as some might know, Joran was killed in a climbing accident. And if, uh, I still decided to, to fulfill that mutual dream that we had embarked on together. Well, we never started, but we had started to plan it together. And I really felt like I wanted to finish and get closure to that, to that expedition and to that dream we had Uh, we're going to do originally together. And it was an expedition that I really fell in love with, the whole adventure, because it was so different than anything I had done before. I mean, it's it's a very long time. Fortunately, I didn't know how big the US was. <laughs> so that was, um, I mean, sometimes to be naive can be positive. Uh, so when I started thinking about it, I just thought about all those amazing contrasts. I mean, travel on the boundaries between extreme nature and extreme civilization and discover uh, yeah, the U.S. in, in new eyes and uh, to paddle and to, to hike. The bike was added later when I really started down, sit, sat down and started planning it for a solo person, not not. A, to team expedition so I added the bicycle but I just fell in love with the project from the beginning and wanted to discover the US in in my way it's it's such a unique <laughs> I mean there's and I know the backstory of some of this and so I I know you've been interviewed a million times so I I, won't, I don't want to take us through um some of those same things but it Uh, but I actually, sorry, I actually don't mind. I mean, I love talking about the adventures because it brings me back to uh, to when I was there, and I shine up when I think about it. Yeah, it's it's just fantastic to be fortunate enough to be able to do these things. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's unbelievable. Just, I mean, you're. <laughs> You're legendary in so many ways. So this is so cool. But this adventure, like you said, it's long. I mean, it was over a year of being on the adventure itself. And I mean, it's so daunting. I know mountaineering is also really long expeditions. They can be months even. Um, but there is a relatively short window compared to something like this that's going to take thousands and thousands of miles, so much effort and so much time. So it seems so different, um, especially from the world of climbing and mountaineering, where it's just a slower pace. Like you circumnavigated the entire US and you were trying to stay on water, but your bike, you actually pulled a kayak. And, and so what was the goal to stay on the water as much as possible and only bike where you needed to? And if so, um, what did you do with the bike when you were kayaking and vice versa? <laughs> 
Yeah, that's a very common question. <laughs> uh, and the whole idea was originally to yeah, circumnavigate the lower 48 states. So not Alaska or Hawaii. I didn't know. Two of the best states, of course. Two of the best states. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So what I did was I started in Seattle and I paddled the entire Pacific coast down to San Diego. And then I turned eastwards uh, and followed the Mexican border all the way to to Texas and the Gulf of Mexico. And then I uh, was going to paddle the whole intracoastal waterway, uh, but due to the Hurricane Katarina, I had to take some other alternative routes there, bicycling instead of only paddling. And then around Florida, the Keys down to the Everglades and Key West, and then up the entire Atlantic coast up to Eastport in Maine, and then, yeah, following the Canadian border back to Seattle. Uh, And originally, uh, we were only going to paddle and walk. Uh, But when I decided to do this by myself, I added the bicycle because I really love to bicycle. I bicycled from Nepal to Sweden. I used to compete in bicycling. So bicycling is a fantastic way to get around. (laughs) Uh, So, um, and of course, I realized that to have the bicycle with me on the kayak will be um, I mean, it, of course, it, everything can work. And I looked at different foldable bikes, actually, to be able to have the bike with me. Because the advantage of having a bike with me is that when the days on the ocean, or with the, if the waves are too big and the swells are too big and it becomes too risky to, to paddle, I can always um, get, I can get up on land and bicycle, which... Of course, it's also a fast way of of, of um, transporting myself and the kayak. Uh, but to those foldable bikes, I mean, they it just didn't work, and it it um, wasn't good for the balance uh, on the kayak. So instead, I had a small trailer with me the whole time, though, so I could always load the kayak on a trailer and actually had a rig so I could pull the the kayak on the trailer behind me so I could walk instead. So the the bicycle was uh, picked up in a few different locations uh, along the route. So that was all planned ahead. But the kayak was with me the whole way around. Uh, so I never shipped the kayak or sent it. That was with me the, the, the whole time. So it really became my companion. <laughs> And so I, I, there's gonna, I'm going to have to include some pictures because you literally, like you just said, your kayak was essentially a, a, on a little set of wheels, a trailer, and you would pull it behind your bike the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's... Or walking. That's, oh, when, yeah. I was, when I was walking, I had it with me, which uh, actually was a fantastic way to, to get around. I mean, I'm used to carrying backpacks, heavy backpacks. Yeah. Uh, but to have a kayak uh, that weighed, I mean, fully loaded, it weighed over 100 kilos. I'm not really sure how much that is yeah. in pounds, but it's it's uh, heavy. And you could never carry that on your back. So to have that on um, on the trailer was really good because then I could have extra water and extra food and all my stuff, all my gear with me. Wow. 220 pounds. Is what okay. that is for the uh, so that's that's a, a little bit. I'm about 200 pounds, so yeah. 
probably another me me plus a backpack and and that's yeah. what you were pulling around the whole time so and i did i mean i had days around uh there was one stretch uh, past the coast of massachusetts where it was raining for like 30 days it was big f- um, showers and and thunderstorms and and uh, floods so i couldn't paddle because it just became too too dangerous so i walked which also was kind of tricky because yeah there was floods everywhere uh, but i still managed to walk like 24 25 miles per day uh, so when i walked that's what i did and i um, per day the same distance that i actually paddled per day and that I could never have done that if I didn't have the kayak on a trailer, or probably not. Unbelievable. So, you know, having having been based in Seattle a while, which is just a stunning area here in the States, beautiful place, wonderful place to go. You, you know, there's this phenomenon when you're planning an adventure, at least for me, and I've heard it from other adventures, where... You know, you're looking at a map, you're studying these routes, you're studying the logistics, and so you create a mental picture of what you're, it's going to be like. You, you know, you've yeah. never been in these places, but then being there is so different than you can imagine. It happens to me, I mean, every time I look at a map <laughs> of a place I've never been and then go, it's just always different, and it's always fun to see how, how much of a difference it's going to be. Uh, where did you maybe experience that along the route? One of the first locations or one of the most impactful because you covered a lot of ground that you'd probably never been to before. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. I'd like to introduce you to our newest sponsor, Gnarly Nutrition. I know you've heard about them recently because we've had some guests on recently that credits Gnarly for helping them do the the adventures that we talk about on this show. So uh, Chris Fisher was one who did the Vert Max. He did 400,000 feet of elevation gain in a month. Check out that episode. Uh, That was not too far back. And he credits Gnarly Nutrition for keeping him, his body literally sustained during that time, just packing in the calories. It's amazing nutrition for anyone doing anything adventure, uh, endurance-based, whether that's in the mountains or bikepacking or whatever. It's a great thing to have with you prior to an, uh, an adventure training and also during an adventure. And also Jason Hardrath, who recently did um, the 100 fastest known times. He did 100 mountains in 50 days and just was slamming gnarly nutrition. He also credits gnarly for essentially keeping his body sustained. And so um, gnarly nutrition has been around since 2008. They were born in Utah's Wasatch Mountains, uh, and they are committed to educating and inspiring athletes of all levels to be as nutritionally sound as possible. Their nutrition supplements are certified by NSF and have science-backed products free of hormones, free of GMOs, proprietary blends, uh, and nothing artificial. So Gnarly is going to help you get ready and help you sustain during uh, those huge adventure efforts. So if you're looking for the best tasting and the most trusted sports nutrition brand for any endurance athletes, Go to go 
gnarly, and that is G-N-A-R-L-Y.com and use the code gnarlyadventure15 for 15% off. And just, you know, a personal plug here. I love Gnarly. I love the folks there. They're doing such a fantastic job. They have been so great to work with. Uh, They helped provide some products for um, our Journey to 100 film series uh, that we were doing giveaways with at the end of every film screening. So it's been a pleasure to work with them so far. So if you'd like to support the folks that are supporting this show, definitely go visit gonarly.com. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Oh, absolutely. And I did, I mean, I had, I did so much planning. I planned this for five years. I even uh, did like a reconnaissance trip along the entire Washington coast uh, just to get the view of, of um, and yeah, build that mental image in my head of what I, what it was I would be facing. But I pretty soon realized that to do that or to try and cover more of the coast, it, it's that won't help me because even if, I mean, you can go to the same area several times, but the weather and the conditions will change. So it still can feel like a new place. I've I felt that when I've been on mountains. I've, I do a lot of guiding on Kilimanjaro. And I've been there yeah, like eight or nine times. And uh, every time I go, even if I know the mountain by heart, it still is, is a new experience because it's the conditions change or it's new people on the trip. So um, I knew that I, I have to kind of have the mindset and the attitude that every day will be, it will be unexpected. And I don't know what will be around the next corner or around the next bend. And it's that... And that's what I like about being on an adventure, that you really don't know what to what to expect and what it's going to look like. And all the places that I came to and visited, I mean, it was overwhelming and, and so much more beautiful than I could have imagined. Uh, the Pacific Coast, I mean, I've seen sunsets from small beaches that it felt like nobody had ever camped on before, <laughs> probably hadn't, <laughs> that nobody had seen before. Uh, so it, it felt really exclusive and unique um, to, because with a kayak you can get to all these small coves and, and, um, and places where larger boats don't get access to or you don't get access to from land. Um, so it's hard to choose some, I mean, just every day was, uh, was, uh, surprised me in one way or another. What did, what, what was maybe one of your biggest fears or apprehensions going into it? And was it realized or was it surprisingly non-existent? Well, that was actually my my largest fear and worry was not the nature or the ocean or animals. People, um, when I was talking about this expedition, which I was for many years since I planned it for four years or five years, and people knew what I was going to do. So I had to face a lot of questions and, and sometimes doubts. And everybody's like, oh, what about the great white shark? And what about, you know, alligators around Florida? And um, so I actually did a, as much as uh, a bit of research. And I met um, people who know much more about the, the, the sea life. And there is a, there is a, a 
Good Marine Center in, in Seattle. So I paid them a visit and I asked about the great white shark. Do I need to worry? And they just laughed and they said, don't worry about the sharks in the water. Worry about the sharks on land. <laughs> and that's really what I felt, <laughs> that, that, that people will be um, what I actually will fear the most, which is, you know, it's sad to say, but it's the truth. And traffic and and uh, passing larger cities. I knew it was going to take me like four or five days to paddle past Los Angeles. You know, you don't pitch a tent on Venice Beach. So how will I manage those kind of challenges? So people was what I was mostly worried about, how they would... Uh, greet me, how they would approach me and how they would react to what I was doing. And I prepared really for for situations where people would not be so nice and find had tactics on how to uh, how to act if somebody got within different I kind of had these circles of safety if somebody got too close, how I, how how I would act and so on. But I never had to uh, implemented, fortunately. It was completely the opposite. I met people who were so friendly and so helpful and so genuinely uh, fascinated and excited about what I was doing. And I got adopted three times. So I have like surrogate families in the US. <laughs> you, you got adopted uh, three so, times, you said. <laughs> So it it actually restored my faith in uh, human kindness in many ways. Um, Because wherever I stopped, whenever I needed help, I mean, it was overwhelming how friendly people were. There was just one area where I kind of faced a bit of a harsher attitude, uh, which probably wasn't maybe even harsh, but I kind of had... Since I hadn't faced it for so long, just to get um, that somebody questioned what I was doing was a, a surprise. And that was in the very south, past Louisiana, Mississippi and, and Alabama. And that was due to the hurricane and that situation that the people in that area, I mean, that was, uh, they were fighting, had lost their homes and and uh, just were in a very difficult situation. And there I was, you know, fulfilling my dream. So there it collided a bit. But uh, otherwise, people were super, super friendly. So tell us about that. I was going to ask, you know, you, you went through it such an, a collision of worlds, Yeah. you know, quite literally. But also, I, I remember on one of my bike trips, uh, my first one, my big, my big trip, five thousand miles across the U.S. and Canada, and I went through Joplin, Missouri, right after tornadoes went through. I'm talking a week, maybe, to where, I mean, people had died and lost their homes, and it looked like a war zone. And here we are biking through, and it, yeah, this sensation of guilt, the sensation of really not taking things for granted, and it, it is. The conversation you have in your head, what what am I doing out here? And and uh, but you did you, you don't set out to kind of throw that in people's face. It just kind of happens, you know what I mean? You don't mean to go through these areas at the time that they're feeling, you know, do, doing their worst. Uh, but it happened for you in a much bigger way than mine through Katrina. That was just a legendary 
uh, awful ex- uh, place. We, there, were, there was lots of people from our area here in Florida that actually went to volunteer. My wife organized a whole team to go up there and volunteer. Mm. But what was it like for you going through there? Could you see the devastation from the point of view of the water? I mean, I I avoided the water because of all the debris and just uh, safety reasons. Oh, Not so a good you were place on land to be. That and time. just I, so that's I bicycled, yeah, uh, which also was. Um, I mean, I stayed in motels, which was like I shouldn't be here because there's people who really have nowhere to stay that should, you know, be here. Uh, so it. it like you said, it was felt like a war zone, and I just tried to pass that as quickly as possible, you know, not being noticed because it just, I really felt I was in the wrong place doing the wrong thing. And uh, I can completely understand and fully understand why people were, you know, wondering who I was and why I was there and uh, about the timing and everything. So I just tried to, yeah sneak through in a way and and not make a big fuss about what I was doing. Otherwise, you know, when I get into a diner and people are curious of what I'm doing, I would, you know, happily talk about my expeditions and people would get excited and here they're like, you know, what are you doing here? So it was like, yeah, I mean, I'm just passing through. (laughs) Do do you remember, once you passed that area, do you remember anything about the Tampa Bay or oh, beautiful. Uh, er, that area in Florida, <laughs> Sarasota, St. Pete. I, I live yeah. right there on near Anna Maria Island. And uh, you had to have gone right past here is what I'm saying. I'm right on yeah. the coast. So you, you I, I wish I had known about this. I mean, I was much, you know, I wouldn't have been into this at that age. But uh, it's so cool that you went right by here. Yeah, the white beaches that actually, you know, they kind of squeak when you walk on them. It's just uh, just fantastic. And all these uh, string of islands. God, I forgot all the names of them. but uh, I think the area is so, called so 10,000 Islands, so I think yeah. you can afford to yeah. forget a few of yeah. their names. <laughs> so I've camped on quite a few of those, yeah. Just That's awesome. Beautiful. And the Everglades, yeah. too. That was a very unique yeah. area. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And I was there in winter time, so it, the the I mean the conditions were really really good. And that's so I knew I had a window of like 16 months that because I really needed to be in certain areas of the US in certain time of the year to avoid yeah like the hurricane season and and being not being in the great lakes in in winter time and being on the west coast in the summertime when the the swells aren't as big, so I really had this window of sixteen months. Um, couldn't be too fast, but not too slow either. So, wow. Um, yeah, no, but yeah, Florida was uh, was really really nice and paddled past Naples into the canals there. So, I mean, I was in no hurry. That's. I've never been in a hurry on my expeditions and 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 try and and see the surroundings as as much as possible and and spend time and enjoying what I do even if it's hard sometimes. I mean wow. it's it's about learning and and meeting people and and yeah just getting a getting a a, a sense of the area that I'm in and and what it looks like and the people that are there and that was, and that's what's so was so amazing about this trip. It's there were so many contrasts, 
Um, it felt like I didn't pass one country. I mean, I passed several countries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a big place in lots yeah. of lots of cultures and lots of uh, diversity. Did did you t- tell us? You 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 mentioned how much it restored your faith in humanity. This experience and seeing the kindness, and and I agree. You know. I don't know if I've never done a big mountaineering expedition, so I don't know if you just don't get as much as of that. I imagine you don't get as much as that human interaction just by chance. You obviously have your crew or your team in base camp and all that and camps going up mountains, but not just spur the moment interactions with other quote normal people. And I wonder, you know, could you share a story where, Maybe that faith in humanity resto- restored something that just happened on the experience. Maybe you're having a bad day, or um, just a just a unique encounter with a person that really made you feel, "Ah, I'm so glad I'm out here doing this." Yeah, but I mean, I've every time that I stop to mend a, a, a flat tire. Uh, Cars would stop and they would ask me if I need help. And sometimes I did and sometimes I didn't. And I've had, there was one um, one woman who, I think something had broken on the bicycle and I was in the middle of, of nowhere and kind of didn't really know how to, how to fix it. And she said, well, you know, I can give you a ride. Uh, and then she gave me a ride. We, we um, I think she had like, yeah, a, a pickup truck so we could take everything on the truck and rode, got to the name, nearest town. And I was starting to mend the bicycle. And then I realized I need to do, while I'm there, other errands. And she was like, yeah, you can take my car and do what you need to do. <laughs> so she borrowed me her car. I mean, in, it's like in what other world would people borrow you your car and and let you their car and let you drive around and and do your errands? Wow! So just that was you know so surprising, and people invited me to stay with them. And there was one family that I met in uh, in Cannon Beach in in California. They were having a family reunion in a huge camping ground in Cannon Beach, and I had pitched my tent in a small slot like between two huge RV trucks <laughs> those kind of that expand that you know have washing machines and drying machines and and or dryers and, and yes. uh, microwaves and dishwashers and everything and cooking my uh, sitting in my Hilleberg tent and and cooking my freeze-dried food on a small dream stove and they looked at me and they said okay what are you doing so they invited me over for their barbecue and we had s'mores and uh, really connected and they were so intrigued by what I was doing and they lived in Orange County so they said oh and I told them about the challenges I knew I would face passing Los Angeles and they said oh we will help you so when I got closer to LA they they gave me their numbers, so I called them and tell them told them my location when I had paddled for that day, and they would come and pick me up and drive me to their home. Sharon, the mom, she had learned how to found she found a recipe how to do Swedish pancakes, <laughs> so she did Swedish pancakes for me, and then they would drive me out to the same location next day so that I could continue paddling. So I could sleep safe and they would feed me and then I could do my paddling during the day. They did that for four days. That was one of the families they adopted me. And they would actually call me on every Sunday 
uh, for like a few years after the expedition because that's the day when they could called all their, all their kids. And they actually came to Seattle when I reached, uh, when I finished my expedition September 15th. They flew to Seattle to greet me. Oh I mean, my gosh, that, that's I mean, giving me like, chills. That's giving me chills. It's just amazing, the Koskas. So I hope they hear this because they were just fantastic people. And I mean, I've met fantastic people on other expeditions too. It's not like when I've been away in Nepal or Pakistan or Iran, it's, I mean, it's, or Europe or South America. People are most of the times really friendly, but then I kind of expected more because I'm out on an expedition where I expect to meet more people who who live in nature, who are surrounded with mountains. So um, here I was more prepared to meet people who live in the cities and who are not necessarily into what I'm doing. Uh, so I think that's why I was preparing more to face people yeah, that might have a different outlook on life than I have while in Nepal or in these other places. I kind of didn't have my guard high as I did when I went to the U.S. Wow. That is amazing. And, and I know it's one of the major themes on this show is that the world is so much more helpful than you might think it is or so much I won't say safer for everyone, but just say it's safer. Like you put yourself out there on an experience. People are excited to help. It's almost like you create an experience for others as well, because I mean, just as much as they had an impact on you, you clearly had an impact on them for them to spend their time <laughs> and money to for one call you and then to 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 host you and then to come see you. Um, that clearly created something exciting for them to be a part of. And that's the cool thing about adventure is, when you do things like this, especially that go through towns and go through uh, areas with people, um, you're you're as mu- as much as they're breaking up your kind of monotonous cycle, you're breaking up theirs to help them have something exciting to do too. We host cyclists at our home and I'm, I get so excited every time one comes by (laughs) because it's like stories and I interview them and we get to feed them and just see, you know, send them off on their way the next day. It's just, it's a blessing for us as much as it is for them. Yeah, I feel the same. Uh, Unfortunately, not so many bikers pass Jan Schöping, but (laughs) I've had a few. (laughs) Oh man! Well, uh, well, I, t- I want to ask this too. You, uh, you obviously went across. You know the the two, the Pacific and the Atlantic. You you kayaked and cycled in combination. There's lots of people along those routes. Biggest cities in America are along um, the coasts. Uh, but then you also did the borders of Canada and Mexico. Um, can you talk yeah. about, which are very different, very, very different, I, I imagine. I, I don't know. I have cycled the, the Mexican border, the U.S.-Mexican border, and I've cycled a lot around the Canada too. So I do see think there's a lot of differences there. Could you talk to us about the different challenges as far as like logistically getting through it? Because I know there's a river along part of the U.S. and Mexico border, the Rio Grande. What was that like? And how did they differ? How did the two borders differ there? Oh, I think it was a a huge difference. I mean, I did paddle parts of the Rio Grande, uh, Big Bend National Park in Texas, just fantastic. And the the park rangers there were really, really helpful uh, to to give me um, information about 
the river and what to think about and and safety aspects because I mean there are people trying to get across the border so I saw a lot of U.S. border patrols and um, so that was kind of present uh, big parts of the of that. Uh, of the U.S.-Mexican border um, and the climate. I mean, it's desert, very, very warm. A lot of ghost towns, it felt like. Uh, a lot of large, long stretches with absolutely nothing, which is some in some parts in, in uh, North Dakota and Montana as well. <laughs> uh, and I actually p- bicycled into parts of Canada uh, because I wanted to avoid some major cities like Detroit, for instance. So I decided to uh, cross over into into Canada instead. Um, but just, I mean, just different uh, climate-wise. Uh, it just felt more, I mean, the nature uh, is, not just the nature is different, but it felt the... I think I felt, I mean, I met more people uh, in um, around Wisconsin and and, uh, and Minnesota. Uh, the New Mexico and Arizona and Texas felt I didn't encounter as much people there. Just this uh, feeling that I have or remember. But it's just, it's just different. I can't say specifically what. The food also <laughs> Was, was different. I mean, I ate wherever I could. Uh, so um, a lot of diners, which of course in the US is kind of the same, no matter where you are. <laughs> uh, but um, just felt like two different countries in a way, but still the same language and in many ways the same food as well, I guess. So I can't say any specific differences. Wow. So what was maybe an area that, surprised you the most as far as what you expected and what the reality was? I mean, I was surprised in some ways, kind of every day. uh, But at the same time, I had prepared so much for this expedition. I had put five years into the planning and the preparation and the training. And I had been to the States and you know, talk to kayaking clubs and try to get as much input and information as possible. I paddle stretches of Washington coast training. I had been to New York before and to Florida. And, uh, and uh, so, I mean, I don't, to be honest, I don't know besides what I mentioned before about how super friendly everybody was, but that was in one way, not a surprise it shouldn't have surprised me as much because whenever I've been to the U.S., even besides being, you know, doing the expedition, people have been very friendly. That's something that we joke about in Sweden that the American people can sometimes feel super, super um, superficial. I think it's called because they're very like, "Hi, how are you doing? Have a nice day," but they're not really interested in how you're really doing. While it's kind of nice that people at least greet you and say hi and that they ask, even if they don't want to know your 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 whole medical journal, which is completely fine. <laughs> uh, I, I, pref- I prefer I prefer that than people not even saying hi to each other. 
So, I mean, the, people are really friendly. Uh, I just kind of rediscovered that when I did this expedition, I think. But what surprised me, um, I think I was really prepared for for a lot. So I don't know what... And I knew that the nature was going to be fantastic. Um, I think what surprised me is that it is so big. <laughs> I think when I, I knew that it's... I mean, I did... 18,200 kilometers, 11,300 miles. I knew I was covering an amazing distance, but I think it wasn't until I kind of really started that I realized, you know, after one week of, of paddling when I had the entire map, I kind of had moved, you know, one inch, even if one inch, maybe even less. So I just, how, how huge it is and and the diversity and um it just I think that's kind of even if I knew it, it just became so real. So fascinating. Um gosh, so so much on this adventure and, and uh just one of your adventures. It's so wild. So 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 what was maybe an experience along here? What tell us about one of the hardest days or one of the days that just sticks out to you as wow, that was that was an extremely difficult or or maybe the crux of the experience where you know, I don't know if you ever doubted if you could finish, but maybe the day that was the closest to that, if possible. Well, I have I have two days that are very um, still are very, very clear in yeah. my head. Hey, that's not too that bad were, for 400 plus days. And <laughs> <laughs> well, I try not to focus on the difficult things. Yeah. That, I try to focus on the positive things, uh, but there are two days that will will never fade. I think, and that was Claylock Beach. Um, I was I left north of Claylock Beach. I left early in the morning uh, paddling and listened to the weather radio, and they reported that there were going to be you know large severe swells and uh, the weather was going to change for the worst, but it changed a lot faster and kind of get into a, a meditative state when I was paddling and you're just in those swells and I kind of got blind in seeing how, how high they really were. And suddenly I felt like just surrounded by huge, huge swells that felt like they were I mean, like houses, and I kind of said, "Okay, this is this is not good. I have to get closer up on land and uh, and uh, get out of here." So I and I was still kind of always close to land, but I just realized I can't continue paddling in these conditions. Um, and then, of course, when I when I have to get up on land, uh, that's when the swell starts to break and became. I mean, just huge dumping waves. And uh, and it just became too much for me to manage. And it, even if I could manage the kayak and, and I'm good, a good, decent paddler, still the, the, the waves were too, too big. And, and to try and maneuver a kayak that weighs 100 kilos, I mean, it's like a projectile. It's like a missile. The waves just catches it and they, they caught me and I... I tumbled around and I flew out of the boat and under the waves and felt like I was in a, a washing machine. And I know something hit me and I think it was the 
the kayak and I knew that I can't get in between the land and the boat. I just have to be so I don't get hit by it again because every time the waves catches the boat, it just, you know, just can hit me with this massive force. So try and or try and, and um, locate where I am, where land is, where I am and when the boat, where the boat was. And eventually I'm I'm thrown up on land, washed up on land like a like a wet uh, piece of cloth <laughs> and just lying there. And uh, my boat, the kayak also is washed up on land. And uh, But everything was, nothing broke. The kayak was whole and, and me as well. But that was, that was a tumbling, um, unpleasant uh, experience um, that kind of made me realize that you do become blind sometimes for for the circumstances because you get so used to them. I mean, today, if somebody would put me on the Pacific Ocean to paddle, I would probably react if the if the waves were like, you know, 20, 30 centimeters or half a meter or definitely a meter. Suddenly you're in waves that are two, three meters and you don't even react because you're so used to it. But the danger can be there. It's still present. So that kind of was... Um, an eye opener, and I found also discovered that started practicing a new technique. So next times that the waves were very big, I started paddling backwards onto land. So instead of facing land with the front of the kayak, I turned around and I would face the waves with the front of the kayak. So I surfed backwards on the waves, which made it a lot safer. And after that, I was never in a bad situation again. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah, I'm sure that was very, uh, very scary. Yeah, and scary because I didn't want anything to break uh, the boat to hit the reef or something, and definitely not me either. And then there was one uh, episode in uh, uh, on my way to Rio Grande where there was a very steep hill. And uh, that was, I didn't realize when I was bicycling that... Well, actually, I got to this crossroad. This was like, felt like it was a movie. It was this small, small town that felt very deserted. And there was this typical American house with a huge porch. And there was a man sitting on the porch in a chair, rocking chair. And I kind of, I like to strike conversations with people. So I asked him, you know, I have a map. There's two different ways to go. And more just for to talk to him, I asked, you know, which route would you recommend? And he said, uh, oh, I would definitely recommend the scenic route. And I asked, yeah, which one is that? And he showed me which route. And I said, yeah, that's the, probably the one I would have chosen anyway. So I head out on that. But it just that what he didn't tell me was that one of the steepest hills in the in Texas is on that road. Which must have He's made him. probably I don't know never if he did. biked it, honestly. <laughs> or he just, or he kind of felt like that was his intention <laughs> to send me off on the most difficult route instead of saying, "Well, that's the scenic route, but I wouldn't choose that because that's really, really steep." So, because even if you go with a car, it's really, really steep. Uh, so I had to pull my kayak up that hill, and I have that on video. And I cry when I reach the crest. I was completely exhausted. And I knew that I can't stop in the middle of the hill because if I stop, I will never get this this um, this trailer rolling again. 
not in that up direction. It will pull me back down again. Wow. But I did it. <laughs> you did it. You did it. Wow. That is unbelievable. Well, well, tell us, you know, that's, that's a low light. Tell us maybe one thing that you look back on with a lot of fondness, an area or a story, something that happened that, uh, that you think, wow, that's, that's exactly why I would do this. That, that did, maybe didn't involve people. Could be animals, could be scenery. I mean, I've, I've seen, uh, I've had dolphins swim under the boat, blowing out bubbles. I've seen uh, whales and have seen sea otters. And, and those encounters are just magical when you paddle in the kelp and you see those sea otters and uh, it takes they actually don't spot you immediately so it's almost like you're sneaking up on them because you're so quiet in the kayak and you, I'm kind of I have to keep myself from giggling because the sea otters don't see me and suddenly they do and they're like surprised <laughs> where did she come from <laughs> and those were just such dear moments and that happened quite a few times when you surprise the animals but really surprise them it's not like they see you from a distance and they know okay i i know that she's coming and i have it under control but you actually sneak up on them and and surprise them and you can see it in their faces that they have you know that was that was fun uh, and all the sunrises and the sunsets and and um and pitching my tent um, on a beach where uh, I remember there was one place where I'd pitched my tent and there was a stream uh, running from from some uh, yeah, some rocks or some hills and uh, that kind of almost created a pool in the sand with fresh water. So I was lying there in the evening taking a bath, seeing this amazing you know, really a natural spring of some size, some sort, and having a freshwater bath in the middle of nowhere, uh, all by myself. And it's like, it doesn't get better than this. I have to pinch myself to believe that, that you can have moments like that. Wow. That's why we do adventure. Yeah. So as you approach the end of this experience, I know that there were people waiting on, on, on you at the finish line. I know that the mayor eventually uh, made an official day for you in Seattle, which is amazing. <laughs> like, <laughs> And I, I wanted, what, what were you feeling as you approached? Did it feel like I, I'm ready to be done or was it I could keep this thing going? I think I was pretty ready. <laughs> I mean, I was, uh, although I wouldn't, I mean, have it undone for anything, but uh, I think when you start kind of heading home or you start getting that sensation that you will make it to the finish line and it's getting closer, then the focus on on finishing becomes um, very present. Uh, You don't have to keep it away because if I was only be thinking about finishing too early then then that wouldn't be you know too early on the expedition to look forward to finishing then that's not a good sensation to carry around for 14 and a half months but to to know that I have two weeks left or one week left and really let that sink in 
and to have time to realize that, um, I mean, I've been doing this for 14 months, uh, packing and unpacking and packing and unpacking every day, more or less, and moving from one place to another, not sleeping in, in the same bed for uh, for more than a few days. Um, that's, that starts to sink in and how different that life is and how simple that life is in many ways. I mean, it's my whole, the agenda of the day was to, to transport myself from A to B and to do that in the smartest, safest, most efficient way possible and as enjoyable way as possible. Um, life on an expedition and that kind of an adventure becomes really simple. A life at home can be so much more complex and started thinking about how to the the next phase of the expedition uh, or the next phase of the project because an expedition for me has different phases. I mean, I have the training and the preparation and the planning, then I have the execution part, and then I have the 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 part that comes after, which is where I actually have to try and and uh, and make the most of the investment that the execution part and the expedition part actually is because I do have sponsors I do have there is documentary being made about it and that's when that work starts so that kind of I you know allow myself to sink into that to start thinking about that next next part or that next leg and let um um let those thoughts slip out or uh, think about that a bit more so it's a kind of an acclimatization but in the other way around like I'm preparing for the for the for the expedition before I'm starting and and to have that those few weeks before I finish the before I finish cross the finish line is is important to to start realizing that yeah now life will be completely different again so I was looking forward to finishing and start doing that next part and kind of was really happy that I didn't have to paddle or bike anymore. <laughs> I'll never forget the first morning waking up in, in Seattle after finishing on September 15th and looking out over a very great Puget Sound, uh, laying in an apartment hotel, having my family there, looking out through these huge glass windows, seeing the ferries over to Bainbridge Island, seeing the route that I had paddled, both going out of the sound because I started in, in the Ballard Locks in Lake Union and paddled out and then paddled in again and, and lying there and kind of pulling the the blanket or the uh, the sheet uh, over my, you know, back and saying I don't have to get out of bed today I can lie here and look at the the Puget Sound but I don't have to get in a kayak and paddle that was a nice sensation I was gonna ask that if you remember the first day of not having to get back up and do (laughs) anything on the other hand three days later I was out paddling uh, uh, anyway because we had to we wanted to do some filming uh, some footage when I was uh, kayaking in, in huge waves and big swells, and I didn't want to do that during the expedition. So I still was yeah. in the kayak three days later. <laughs> you can't, and you I, can't and stop. I, st- I know. <laughs> and I still love paddling, So, and uh, I always will. I remember after my first big adventure, um, 
5,000 miles, so 8,000 kilometers or so. I'd been gone two months. I was in college, so I, I was home for the summer. I biked home from Alaska, and I got up the next morning. At my, I was at my mom's house. I got up the next morning and said, Mom, I'm going to bike to my dad's house. It's about three miles away. They're divorced, but they live close by. And she goes, oh, you can't bike on that road. It's dangerous. Mm. <laughs> and I said, Mom, I just came here from Alaska to this house <laughs> on that yeah. same road. I'm going to go to Dad's house. And I just remember <laughs> thinking, what a funny juxtaposition from being out there for so long and then back in this other world. But yeah. for you, what do you think is among the biggest lessons you learned on this experience specifically versus your other adventures? I mean, this expedition for me was, um, had so many other layers to it than others, other expeditions that I've done. And that has, of course, a lot to do with my relationship with Göran, who, who, uh, who, we were, who I was going to do the expedition with, and I ended up doing it alone. Uh, for me, it really was rediscovering myself in many ways, and it was an important expedition for me personally to do. Uh, and even, I mean, I kind of knew that this is who I am and this is what I want to do, but living in an amazing relationship that we had for many years. And I was quite young when we met. Uh, I've many times been faced with women who look at me and they say, oh, you poor thing, he drags you around all these mountains and you have to sleep in tents and you can't shower properly. And I was like, okay. I started, from their questions, I started kind of, or their attitude, I started almost questioning, you know, is this really me or am I doing it because I'm in a relationship with somebody who loves the outdoors, although I know I love the outdoors. But for me, this was important to to find out, is this is this really me? Or did I enjoy doing all these expeditions that I did because I lived with a fantastic man and adventure? And to to really discover that this is me because otherwise I would not have been able to to finish this expedition uh, for me that was important to to get grounded in that and also to discover again well not maybe discover but to once and for all know that people and humans and I am capable of so much more than one initially might think if you break it down into smaller steps, if you go about things, you know, solve the one problem and then the next problem and then the next problem. And if you use your imagination and creativity, there's always ways to move forward. And when you have those dreams to deconstruct them into to manageable uh, pieces and start um, placing them in the right place, place and in the right position and we will build that road uh, to be able to move forward i think it just made me even more sure that that um, people have amazing capacity to do amazing things and many times it's just ourselves oneself that is the you know the biggest hurdle to to overcome your own mindset and belief that that you can do it Amazing reflection there. And I, I want to hear too, as, as we wrap up, is there anything else you want listeners to know? And also what is 
what is next for you? What is on the horizon for you? I know you've done so much and and I know we can't get into all that in this interview, but what's, what is coming up for you that you're excited about? Well, just, I, I really appreciate you asking what I would like people to remember. And it's, I mean, I did an expedition in the US. For me, that was exotic because that's not where I live, but it's, it's so many people's backyard and to rediscover what is in your backyard because there is so much to do and so much fun things to to um, to fill your days with or your free spare time with and you don't have to uh, travel across the world to do it although I have done it <laughs> I mean I'm re- rediscovering my backyard here in Sweden in Jönköping all the time and that the adventures are around the corner around our own corner and we have to become better in in seeing those and and appreciating those um so what is i mean exotic for people come to sweden to experience adventure and we live here so it's just about having that to seeing your backyard with with new eyes and um, it doesn't have to be far away and expensive and dangerous to be in an in a, to be an adventure uh, it's up to us what we want to do how we pursue an adventure and how we how we see things um, so i really want to encourage encourage people to go out and discover and to do it in a spontaneous and, and fun way and not focusing on it being challenging and difficult and you know far away adventure can be in your backyard i started pitching tents in my backyard with my kids and that's some of the most fun things we have done. Fantastic. Now I have to kind of contradict myself a bit, though, because my next expedition is to space. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I've been reading kind of, about that. So that's a bit bit far away from the corner. But yes. uh, I guess I'm one of those that have to push the boundaries. And uh, yeah, so I've always wanted to discover space and that's kind of the final frontier so it's not a long trip it's a very short trip but I feel very happy to one day be able to do it and and to see earth from the outside I think that's gonna change my perspective on many things I mean summiting Everest and seeing the world from that perspective from the from the top of 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 the highest mountain in the world changed me forever. And I think seeing the world from the outside will probably have an even larger impact and may, make me even more realize the challenges that we have. We have to do a lot of changes in, in, in many uh, things here on Earth. And I think a lot of more people should actually leave the planet to see it from the outside might help them take better decisions uh, but um, so that's my next trip I'm booked with Virgin Galactic to go out to space in two or three years I was going to ask if there's a, a date I know that the original plan was right as the pandemic started so um, it was delayed but that's exciting well after that we'll have to have you back on and uh, those will be two very different experiences than the one that we're talking about so I, I would love to hear your your thoughts after that experience. That would be yeah. an exciting thing to talk about. We've had one astronaut on the show ah. who's, who's been to space. Yeah. Um, so 
I'd love to make it a second wow. one. It's not something yeah. we talk about a lot because obviously not a lot of people have gone. So, well, I would love to. I would actually love to, this. The whole uh, this whole trip. I kind of hope that it will be a preparation because I do have a bigger goal, and that is to climb the highest mountain on the moon. Um, so yeah, there's mountain climbing to do in, in space as well. <sighs> that will absolutely be worth a <laughs> podcast episode if that ever gets done that is fantastic. so that's maybe more the proper topic on this okay. podcast then okay. <laughs> awesome well well great well thank you so much for joining us and diving deep diving into one adventure and maybe we'll have you back on to talk about some of the other ones as well i would love to Perfect. thank you so much for having me again first of all Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.